You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.13, part of a system of messages, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and against all reason and experience, I still believe in the possibility of a truly good compilation movie. Will it be this one? And I'm Nina, new to Stardust Memory for just one more week. Another series down and (laughs) to go. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 734 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Jeff G, Beans, Tim M, Tom B, and Hans P. You keep us Genki. If you enjoy MSB, help keep us independent and ad-free by subscribing on Patreon, making a one-time payment on Ko-fi, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or writing us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. On August 29th, 1992, Bondi Visual did something kind of strange. One week after the release of the penultimate episode 12 of Stardust Memory, and a month before the September 24th publication date for episode 13, theaters throughout Japan started playing a feature-length, abridged compilation of the show, which included most of the then-unreleased final episode, as well as a small number of other new scenes throughout. The movie was called 0083 Gion no Zanko, and was given the English title Last Blitz of Zion at the time. Today, we know it as 0083, the afterglow of Zeon. Its tagline was Hoshi no Kuzu Michiru Toki Gandamu Futata Uchue, which means something like, when the stardust rises, Gundam will return to space. For the dedicated Gundam fan of 1992, Afterglow of Zeon was the original version of the finale, the cataclysmic battle around the descending colony, the last stand of the Dalaz fleet, and the ultimate confrontation between Ko and Gato. Episode 13, which adds about four and a half minutes of footage not included in the film, might then be thought of as something like a director's cut or special edition version of the ending. Now, three decades later, we're recreating that experience as best we can, minus the movie theater, by covering the movie this week, in between episodes 12 and 13. So now, the recap. For test pilot Ensign Cole Uraki, everything changes with the arrival of two new Gundam mobile suits and their beautiful lead engineer, Nina Purpleton. While he and his fellow Federation pilots compete to be chosen for the Gundam development project, bigger plans are in motion. Remnants of the Xeon military have bided their time since the one-year war ended, waiting three years for revenge. Organized under Admiral Delaz, they've amassed a fleet and the time has finally come for Operation Stardust. Among the Xeon veterans is Annabel Gato, ace pilot and nightmare of Solomon. In disguise, he steals the Gundam Unit 2 and its nuclear missile. The Federation ship Albion, with Cole and Nina among those aboard, pursues Gato but is unable to recover the mobile suit, and Gato fires the missile into the center of the Federation Naval Review, destroying two-thirds of the fleet. In the chaotic aftermath, Shima Garahau, another commander under Delaz, captures two decommissioned space colonies and sets one on a collision course for Von Braun City on the moon. What the Federation brass don't know is that she has made a deal with the director of Anaheim Electronics, and thanks to him, the colony is redirected, slingshotting around the moon and straight toward Earth. Rife with political infighting, the Federation acts at cross-purposes. Cole and the rest of the Albion's crew do everything they can to stop the colony before it reaches the point of no return, while Gato and the Delaz fleet fend them off. In the midst of battle, Shima launches a coup. 
The colony passes the point of no return, only for a distant shape to come into focus. One of the Federation's orbital fleets has set up an array of mirrors for the Solar System II weapon, which can produce a beam capable of destroying the incoming colony. Shima knew all along and has made a deal with one Federation faction. But the weapon takes time to set up and is difficult to calibrate. Gato leads the last of his forces in an all-out attack on the orbital fleet and its mirror array. Under the intense pressure of the attack, Fleet Commander Basque Ulm orders the solar system to fire before it's fully aligned. The colony shifts slightly but is still intact and still falling towards the Earth. The lead ship is destroyed, leaving the Federation with no means of aiming or calibrating the solar system too for a second strike. Gato enters the colony to adjust its trajectory and there is confronted by his former lover, none other than Nina Purpleton. She tries to dissuade him from his plan, but he is unmoved, pulling the last lever just as a shot rings out and he is wounded. It is Cole, full of hatred for his rival and ready to fight to the death, even though there's no longer any way to stop or redirect the colony. Despite the feelings she's developed for Cole, Nina still cares for Gato, and more than anything wants to stop them from fighting, stop them from killing each other. She helps Gato leave the colony, only for him to bundle her off to the waiting Axis ships. Maintaining their neutrality by staying out of the fighting, they are there to take in any Xeon forces who survive Operation Stardust. Basque orders the solar system to fire one more time, through his own fleet, but the weakened weapon makes no difference. From space, Cole watches the colony fall to Earth, aimed not at Federation forces headquarters in Jaburo like they thought, but at the middle of North America, destroying a significant agricultural center. Gato leads a final, suicidal charge through the Federation lines, crashing his mobile suit into the bridge of a ship. And Nina decides to stay in the Earth sphere, rather than leave with the Axis fleet. Events unfold quickly afterwards. Basque and Jamitov use Operation Stardust as the justification to found the Titans and crack down on the space colonies. Cole is court-martialed and jailed, but released when all evidence of the Gundam development project is destroyed. We know what happens next. What is the point of this movie? <laughs> Do you mean of compilation movies generally, or do you mean of this one specifically? Both, but let's start with compilation movies generally, because from my point of view, I have very little interest in watching a movie that is the OVA, but worse. <laughs> I don't really understand who this movie is for, because I think if you hadn't seen the OVA, this movie would not make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And if you have seen the OVA, the movie is mostly really boring, except for the new content at the very end. The actual like cuts to plot content that they've made are bizarre. And the general abridgment of scenes really undermines all the best parts of 0083 as a, as a film, as an artistic work. Well, you just made all my points, so I have no response to that. <laughs> oh, well, I guess podcast over then. I can kind of see the logic of trying to squeeze still more money out of a production you've already fully paid for. But since they released it before the end of the OVA, wouldn't it undercut sales of that last tape? I actually don't think it would. Um, but you've sort of asked a couple of different questions here. So before talking about this one specifically, as far as I know, the tradition of doing compilation movies for anime series in Japan goes back to Space Battleship Yamato in the 70s. And the idea at the time was, I think, sort of two-part. One, anime on TV, not that prestigious. Anime in theaters, it's something to aspire to. And so if you're a studio that made what you think is a good product for TV anime, you might want to try to get it in theaters as well. And in the case of Space Battleship Yamato, as the story goes, it was a modest success on TV, and then it was a blockbuster in theaters. And a similar kind of thing happened with First Gundam, when it did the TV run and then the compilation movies. 
The other half of this is you have to remember that we're talking about TV in the 70s and then in the 80s. Uh, nothing was on demand. Reruns were rare if they ever happened. And so you might have an audience that had seen only parts of the show or none of it, but had heard about it from their friends. But in the case of this specific production, it was not shown on TV in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. And it was available at rental shops. True. Even if you didn't want to fork out the, the big bucks for the <laughs> tapes themselves, you could still go to a rental shop and rent it. Absolutely. I wish I knew more about the state of the rental market. Uh, I know that the rental industry in the U.S. was going through a slump at this time. As you sort of hinted at, the theater tickets, I, I looked this up, would have cost about 1,800 yen at the time. If you wanted to buy all 12 cassettes and watch all 13 episodes, it would have cost you 55,920 yen. So there's probably a significant portion of the audience who are not willing to fork out the money for this ultra premium release, this niche product, but are willing to put down significantly less money to go see it in theaters, especially if they've heard good things from their Gundam loving friends. I don't know exactly how much they would have charged to rent one of these tapes, but I do know that music rentals in late 80s Japan went for about 10% of the purchase price of the album. If that holds true for video rentals in the early 90s, then you would have been paying about 1300 yen for each tape. The rental tapes contained two or three episodes apiece, so if you were a real sicko for Stardust Memory and you wanted to watch the whole series, it might cost almost 8,000 yen and take up about six hours of your time. And that's assuming you don't have to wait for the other Stardust memory sickos in your area to return the tapes before you can check them out. On the other hand, let's say that you're a casual Gundam fan, maybe feeling a little bit let down after seeing F91 in theaters last year. You might be interested in this show, but not 8,000 yen interested. 1,800 yen, though? Even if it's bad, it's still a fun way to spend an evening. But then you've got those hardcore fans who have bought all of the tapes. For them, this is like, okay, you are the number one Gundam fan. You are the target audience for this show. Are you going to wait a whole month until the last VHS comes out? Or are you going to go watch it in theaters right now? There were brief moments in this film where... I thought they were going to do something really interesting. I thought I saw the beginnings of a cool idea for a retelling of the 0083 story. It would have, by necessity, been less of a compilation and more of a retelling. But the version in my head is so cool and good. <laughs> Every time we sit down to watch one of these compilation movies, I hope and I believe that this is the time they're going to do it right. That they're actually going to create a good, integrated, standalone movie out of the footage that they've already made. I believe it can be done. It's just that, in my experience, with the possible exception of the third of the three first Gundam compilation movies, I don't know that they've ever pulled it off. But the first three minutes of this movie, really so promising, really piqued my interest. By having Nina be the voiceover narrator, the one recapping events to the audience, I briefly thought they were going to kind of give us the whole story, but from Nina's POV. That while the main story has been largely from Cole's point of view, for this retelling, maybe it was going to focus more on Nina's perspective and that that could be really interesting and could also allow them to cut a bunch of content that she didn't personally witness or wasn't personally involved in. And they also begin by skipping ahead pretty significantly. Although it turns out that that is a lie. Right. And even when she first starts to flashback and say, how did we get here? I thought, okay, so they're going to give a very brief recap of what happened in those first couple of episodes, and then we'll go back to the time established in that opening shot. But no, it's actually quite a long recap of those first few episodes that cuts most of what I think is important. Even aside from Nina's opening narration, the movie opens strong with a new, completely newly animated section showing the colony restoration project, showing spacenoid workers welding in space, repairing the colonies, and they see those two 
headed off to side three where there's enough industrial capacity to repair them. We learn that side one, which once contained 40 thriving colonies, is now just a graveyard. Immaculate scene setting here at the beginning and foreshadows the stuff that's going to come later. Fixing, I think, one of the big problems in the first part of 0083, which is that it doesn't do much to set up the latter part. Another thing that I did enjoy about the movie is they're not shy about including text or narration, just explaining a little bit more about what's going on in this world and how things work and <laughs> what's happening. Things that are never explained in the OVA uh, and that you're either supposed to figure out by inferring or from all that money you're spending on extra Gundam books and <laughs> comics and tapes and whatever. Yeah, I loved that. I would have put a lot more of that in, actually. So then after this first opening three minutes and Nina's narration, which picks up at the end of episode three, a really bold decision indicating a willingness to make big cuts in order to focus on the particular story they wanted to tell, they then spend 12 minutes just redoing those episodes that they had already skipped before getting back to the same scene they opened on. And here the movie begins to show a really worrisome tendency to focus on plot events instead of character development. And this feels particularly strange because they keep a bunch of very emotionally impactful scenes, but without most of the setup, backstory, context that made them emotionally impactful in the first place. For example, Burning breaking his cast so he can go rescue Cole They've had one scene together before this in the movie, and it's just Burning telling Cole, you need to stop being a rookie, like, right now, and you need to figure out what you're fighting for. There's no establishment of this quite close, nice relationship that they have, and so what do we care that Burning is breaking himself out of his cast to go help? We don't, really. Well, we don't see how he gets injured, so we don't know why he's in the cast. I mean, this is an endemic problem in the movie. They cut basically all of the Mancha stuff, which means we lose all of Mancha's many crimes and abuses, and we just end up with a guy with a nice mustache and a big nose and a winning way with the ladies. That rivalry is such a big part of Cole's motivation in the show, and it's really unclear what's motivating him in the movie. They also drop most of the will-they-won't-they they about him and Nina, and so... That bit of character growth for him, that sense that he's learning to be more direct and more outspoken, gone. Clearly, they never had any relationship problem at all, except for that time that she threatened to take away the Gundam. And because we lose that rivalry with Mancha, we don't understand why Cole is so obsessed with the Gundam that he won't agree to pilot a gym even once, even though it would be the right move. In fact, I think Ko's motivation might be the thing that suffers most throughout the movie from the cuts. Well, they cut uh, they cut most of the significant deaths from the early part of the series. So, you know, other than the assumption that, of course, he's lost comrades in combat, we haven't actually seen that happen to him. We haven't actually seen how that affects him. They still have him meet Kelly Lazner on the moon. They still have him help repair the Valwalo, but then they cut the second of those episodes, so we never actually see the Valwalo in action. Ko is never forced to fight Kelly. Uh, Burning's death is cut completely. Lucette is cut entirely, and so I don't get why they included the Lavian Rose at all, or the mutiny or the theft. You could have just said, and then we went and got the Unit 3 and kept fighting, <laughs> and it would have made just as much sense. Uh, but when you brought up Kelly, I remembered there were some cuts that I thought made sense in terms of cutting for time, like if they had cut the entirety of the Kelly storyline or uh, the cut of the secret base in Africa. But without those scenes, Gato becomes a much less sympathetic character, I think, mm -hmm. because he's just some weird obsessive guy. When you see that he is, in fact, part of this larger movement, that there are a ton of regular guys, regular veterans out there still clinging to this idea of fighting to the bitter end. And who view him very specifically as their savior. And that he treats them with care and respect. 
I don't think much of Gato's ideals or rationale, but he does treat his subordinates and the people who follow him with a lot of respect and care. And we lose most of that. That's just gone. We also lose every hint of any relationship between Nina and Gato. Until the very end. Until the very end, when it comes completely out of nowhere. They gave themselves the perfect opportunity to correct what feels like a major omission from the OVA. And instead, they did the opposite. The interaction between Nina and Kelly, in which it's implied that she knows both of them, gone. The interaction between Nina and Lucette, in which it's made explicit, that's gone. When she has that interaction with her co-workers and they mention, you know, this doesn't have to be like last time. Being committed to your job doesn't have to mean that your relationship is doomed. They did change quite a bit of dialogue and added dialogue to kind of explain things a bit more, especially where they had made cuts. And there are places where I'm not sure if dialogue was changed or if it's just a different translation for the subtitling, but I'm pretty sure both of those things happened. (laughs) And that is one scene where I think they redubbed it to make it explicit that they know she's in love with this pilot and that she wants to go on the ship so that she can stay with him. I mean, they have to because all the actual scenes of Ko and Nina together that could have informed the audience about that are on the cutting room floor. For a movie that opens by flagging Nina as the point of view character and suggesting that this is going to be her version of the story, she gets done pretty rotten in terms of the cuts. She is a very minor character in this movie, right up until the end. But then I'm not sure who is supposed to be the main character of this movie. The one thing I really appreciated about watching the story this way, all together in the course of just two hours, is that it really highlighted for me how the focus of the story shifts over time, from a focus on Cole, his beliefs, his quest to understand why it is that he needs to fight, to find his own motivations and try to come to some sort of compromise with the way of the world into this much larger story about the chessboard of the Earth sphere and all of these different factions maneuvering fleets and making plots and ploys and plans. And Ko becomes lost in that. His quest for meaning becomes lost. At the end, all Ko wants to do is kill Gato. Even when there is no possibility of making anything better, Ko has just been reduced to this burning ember of vengeance. His last two meaningful actions are to fire randomly into space for no purpose. Oh, the classic yelling and screaming and firing your gun into the air. (laughs) And then to stand at his court-martial and refuse to say anything, to do nothing at all to justify himself. Because what would he say? By the same token, Gato has completed his mission. He is all done. There's no real reason for him to keep fighting Cole. He's just bent on his own destruction and also hates Cole. And he alludes to hatred as this driving force in warfare. I actually quite liked the very end of the movie. There's a kind of montage of Basque giving a speech, the Titans beginning, the Albion crew in their shiny new Titans uniforms, the court-martial, the information about the suppression of all the data from this specific Gundam development project. But it really felt like it needed one more scene. Even if it was just Cole leaves jail and stands there like, now what? I feel like it it needed something. It needed something at the very end that wasn't just a black screen saying, and then they released Cole from jail, the end. Episode 13 contains one more scene at the end. (gasps) So the show really will be better in every conceivable way. (laughs) Definitely the movie contains at least six really good minutes, and three of them are at the very beginning and three of them are at the very end. I want to note, since you mentioned that, In the theatrical release of the movie, but not in the home video version and not in the episode 13 version, there is a note that Captain Synapse was court-martialed and sentenced to death immediately. Whoa. So in the theatrical version continuity, 
Synapse gets executed for treason and not in the other continuities. I feel like that makes other aspects of the ending not make sense. I cannot imagine the Albion crew looking so chipper and excited if Synapse had just been put to death. Yeah, that part is bizarre. Because they do look really happy and excited to put on those Titans uniforms. Yeah, like, woo, like, this is a move in the right direction. Like, Gives you chills, doesn't it? Yep, because we know and like them. Mm-hmm, most of them. Or at least we do in the show. <laughs> They're basically strangers in the movie. One other moment from almost the very end, which I found very interesting in that, like many parts of the OVA, it kind of gestures in the direction of some Gundam New Type stuff and then goes, okay, but we're not doing that. After the colony falls, Cole is watching from space and he sees the, the huge glow, the impact of it. And he sees a streak of light, which is almost certainly Nina in whatever ship she took to leave the Axis fleet. And in basically every other Gundam show or movie or OVA, when the male protagonist sees or senses the love interest in the distance, that's meaningful. They, they have a reunion or something happens or there's some connection between them, whether psychically or in real life. Something happens with that. It's never just, oh, there's a streak of light in the distance. There is always more to it. Except in this one, where apparently it serves no purpose. It's just there. <laughs> mm. There's a circularity to the way this show ends, for Cole especially, because he begins with no idea of what he should be doing or why he's doing it. And in that bit in space where he's firing randomly with no one to fight, and then standing in court, unable or unwilling to justify himself, he returns to that position of not knowing what to do or why he's doing it. I find it very telling that at this point you are talking about the show. We've moved on from discussing the movie. We're <laughs> <laughs> movie Cole is no longer relevant to us. Uh, Freudian slip. No, this is true in the movie too. Although the thing I'm about to say isn't. But in the movie, his sense of confusion or being conflicted, that deep down sense that he has that he knows Gato is his enemy, but thinks maybe Gato is onto something when he talks about like, well, but what are you fighting for? What are your ideals? What is the point? If you don't have something higher to fight for, why do you do it? And you're never going to be able to fight somebody who does have that something. That comes across much less clearly in the film. You know, the greatest sin the movie commits, actually, is cutting DeLaz's line about the arrow that can only be fired once. I know we mentioned this in, like, every episode now, but that metaphor feels so apt for the show, a show all about setting things in motion and then the weight and inevitability of history dragging everybody along with them. That reminds me, actually. They kept a bunch of the date markers so you can theoretically track the progress of what's happening. But they got rid of almost every countdown related to Operation Stardust. And all this made me think, actually, I was thinking a lot about what would my ideal version of this movie entail? And I think possibly it would involve Nina recapping everything up until Operation Stardust actually begins. So massively compress the earlier parts and then spend more time on Operation Stardust itself. It's unfortunate, but I think them cutting those countdowns gets rid of a lot of the feeling of urgency. Part of what the show does really well is it gives things time to breathe. It gives the audience time to feel things, and it lets emotional moments hit with just the right timing. Whatever else you say about the plot, the story, it is a show that understands the timing of cinema. It's got great pacing. And then abridging something with great pacing will inevitably produce something uh, not as good. And there were some events they even changed the order of, but not for any reason I could understand. And sometimes introduced weird continuity issues as a result of that. I kind of got distracted, though. I was going to point out that in addition to the circularity of Ko's character, Gato also goes from wanting to throw himself into a suicidal, pointless last charge into actually throwing himself into a suicidal blast charge 
except because they have cut the flashback from the beginning of episode one. I mean, it shows up later in the movie, but it's not there at the beginning. Gato doesn't actually get that same circular evolution. Because of how they use the flashback and the cuts they make to it, Gato's desire to die fighting does not come across as strongly in the film version. I think Gato is a fairly tragic and pathetic figure. He has to die because without somebody to tell him what to do, what would he do with himself? He would have needed to find something else to do with his life. Something constructive rather than destructive. All of his goals up until now have been about causing pain and harm and chaos and breaking things. This is one of my main beefs with him ideologically, that his idea of the quote-unquote glory of Zeon is horrifying death and destruction. They say, oh, you're completely dedicated to the rebirth of Zeon, but then he spends the entire show just trying to destroy things for no constructive purpose. And here, here the movie actually does something really good. That opening scene shows us people with hope, people with a constructive project to make the Universal Century better, to improve the conditions in the Earth sphere, to repair these colonies that were destroyed during Zeon's initial attack when they devastated all of the Federation-aligned sides. And then we see the Delaz fleet, this death cult, just entirely devoted to destruction, to tearing down whatever they can. I had been wondering about this for some time, and now that we have the ending, we are finally told the real target was not Jaburo after all. But we don't find out what was actually targeted until that ending montage when we learn that it was the central United States where a lot of like grain and corn and uh, those kind of foodstuffs are grown. The most generous possible reading of this is that they are attempting to cause a famine to destabilize the current regime so that some new regime can take its place. And even that generous read is pretty awful because, one, there's no indication they have any kind of a plan in place or people in place to take advantage of that instability. There's no sense that they are ready to try to take over or co-opt the Federation government or overthrow the Federation government when that happens. They just spent all their resources on this and access has just been sent away. So who, who exactly is going to take advantage of that instability? In fact, we know who does take advantage of it. Jamatov, Basque, Melanie Hugh Carbine, and all the monstrous Federation officials who popped up like weeds in Zeta and Double Zeta. Probably also the profiteers on side six. Shima would have made out like a bandit in the aftermath if she hadn't gotten in too deep trying to play Delaz. Point two, famines don't hurt the rich and powerful. Famines hurt everyone else. So. Who are they harming? Not the Federation brass, not the titans of industry, not the wealthy and powerful who pull all the strings of the government. They're just harming everyday Earthnoids. Just because. Because they wanted to punish Earth or whatever. And to add on to that, at this point, we don't actually know a lot about the balance of trade between Earth and the colonies. There is some reason to think that the colonies are not yet fully self-sufficient in terms of food and other material resources. So they might be hurting Earthnoids, they might be hurting other Spacenoids, though they don't particularly care about that, as aptly demonstrated by the destruction of that colony corporation shuttle while they were in the midst of trying to appeal to their shared Spacenoid values. Um, in 0080, the colony that Al lives on, for instance, there's references to supply ships arriving, bringing food. And the interruption in supply ships because of the war is the reason why they need to eat so much synthetic hamburger. But perhaps the actual strategy here, the goal, is to force the colonies to become self-reliant, to break their economic dependency on the Earth. With no consideration for how many people suffer in the process. I mean, similarly, in the OVA, Gato makes a point of expressing his disgust with Earth. He hates Earth. He never wants to set foot on it again. The only positive feeling he ever feels about Earth is when he is about to drop a colony on it. This is made extremely clear in the show. 
most of those, if not all of those lines, are cut from the movie. So perhaps what he's trying to achieve is one of the same things Char is theoretically trying to achieve in Char's counterattack, which is to make Earth even more inhospitable so even more people are forced to leave Earth and live in space. But at no point in the movie is that made clear. At all. In any way. The closest thing to a motivation he gives us in that final sequence is he says, I'll inspire the next generation, which is like a classic Gundam thing to say. I have no solutions for all of the problems that I've identified, so I'm just going to kill a lot of people and hope that the kids can figure it out. Sadly, we know that he does inspire somebody. But we also know that the kids are not going to figure it out. And forcing more humans into space... Again, lots of people would suffer in the process. And as you pointed out, the colonies might not be self-sufficient yet. And so removing people to space colonies might decrease the burden on the Earth, but is not actually improving the condition of humanity in any way. And it might actually make conditions in the colonies worse. The Earth sphere desperately needs an alternative to the Federation. It is a source of tyranny and oppression, but these kinds of spasmodic violent strikes against it with no plan, no constructive vision of a better world that you can build from them are not making things better. One of the most damaging things a group can do to a government is to show that they can make people's lives better, even though the government is not doing that, to show that, oh, actually, like, if we all work together, we can do stuff that helps you because that sort of demonstrates the uselessness of that government apparatus. Nobody in the Gundam world is interested in doing that, apparently. And the thing is, the High Command in the Earth Federation realizes this. They understand that Delaz is not a meaningful threat to the Federation as an institution. He might be a threat to their individual personal lives. That's why they're scared he's gonna blow up Jaburo, but they understand that institutionally, as an organization, the Federation is much more threatened by, say, the prosperity of the moon as an alternative. Because Luna, for all that it is like a corporate-run oligarchy, offers an alternative to the Federation's, like, weird bureaucratic military hierarchy. I don't have a particularly good transition, but if we want to have anything about the end of this to talk about next week when we watch the last episode of the OVA, we should probably stop there before we cover the entire ending <laughs> and all of our thoughts about it. There were a couple of other things that they changed during the rest of the movie uh, that I wanted to bring up. Mostly music and sound effects, which were very different. For the music, I can point out that the movie retains some of the, um, let's say, lightly plagiarized. Uh, content that was excised from later re-releases of the OVA. Another one you pointed out to me during our watch through was there's this very kind of old-timey military pipe music during the naval review and in some later scenes which you said was taken from some other movie. I think it's from Glory. <laughs> uh, I mostly liked the new tracks that they included the one problem that I had with them is that, like with so many other parts of the movie, it felt like it was undercutting the emotion of the scene. And if I hadn't already seen the OVA, if I didn't already have an impression of the emotional tone that these scenes should have and how they felt to me the first time I watched them, maybe that wouldn't have bothered me as much. But the combination of, you don't have any of the backstory that makes this significant with... And here's some music that also doesn't fit with the emotional tone. Uh, it was really jarring. To name one example, the scene where Nina decides to stay on the Albion after having looked around the bridge and making eye contact with everyone. In the movie version, it's this very, like, adventuresome, driving, slightly upbeat, energetic music that feels totally wrong for the scene. Yeah, in the show, the vibe is, we are all going to die and we would like you to leave. No, I will die with you. Nina <laughs> 
シネフス艦長私は自分の意思で最後まで見届けたいのです In the movie, it's like We're off on an adventure to stop the colony and you're not welcome And she's like No, I want to go on an adventure too ボートの使用を許可します本館を直ちに降りていただきたい Similarly, the music during the Kelly montage felt very strange, but that's also because I expected Kelly and Cole to have to fight immediately afterwards and Kelly to die. And without that, maybe the music makes more sense? I don't know. I didn't like this movie, can you tell? <laughs> but even despite all of this, the next time we have to watch a compilation movie, I know I'm still going to go into it hoping and Praying that this will be the one time that they actually get it right. I really think it can be done. I think it could have been done with this one. If I had more time and knew anything about video editing, I might try to make it myself. And now, Nina's research on the flower symbolism of the Gundam development project. There is something of a theme to the Gundam development project mobile suits beyond their being Gundams. They all have flower names. The GPO 1 or Unit 1 and its full Bernurin version are the Zephyranthes. The GPO 2 or Unit 2 is the Physalis. And the GPO 3 or Unit 3 is the Dendrobium. But before I dig into what those names mean and why they might have been chosen, we need to backtrack for a moment because none of those names are ever mentioned in the OVA. However, the stamen, Gumpla kit, the stamen being the mobile suit portion of the Unit 3, does have both stamen and dendrobium codenames on the cover, and it was released in 1992. So it seems that those names were set sometime during the production. The earliest use of the names that Tom could find was in the drama CD Lunga Offshore Bombardment, which takes place between episodes 7 and 8, and was released between them too on January 21, 1992. In it, Nina says both Sephiranthes and Physalis. We had speculated that around this time the production staff were finalizing the plan for the rest of the OVA, so the flower names could have been part of that process. With that, we can get into why these specific names might have been chosen. I looked at each of them from a few different angles information about the plants themselves, their use in traditional Chinese and Japanese herbal medicine, and their symbolism. Zephyranthes is a genus of flowering plants native to the Western Hemisphere. Popular as ornamental plants in gardens, they are perennials and can grow in temperate or tropical climates. They are part of the Amaryllis family. And the Zephyranthes genus includes more than 200 different species and a huge number of cultivars. Within the genus, there are a wide variety of leaf, petal, and flower shapes and colors, though most flowers are pink, yellow, or white. Some species are night blooming, some have scented flowers. Some bloom only in spring, some only in autumn, and others continuously for months. Blooms are usually short lived, blooming for only one or two days, but new blooms emerge frequently. And horticulturalists refer to periods when the plant has lots of blooms opening at once as blitzes. In the wild, Zephyranthes tend to bloom when a period of drought or drier weather is followed by rain, hence, one of the genus's common names, rain lily. Like lilies, they grow on tall, straight, slender stalks. The bulbs and leaves can look very similar to those of alliums, plants like garlic and onion, but Zephyranthes is poisonous. A quick disclaimer on traditional Chinese medicine I consulted a reference website created and maintained by Hong Kong Baptist University's School of Chinese Medicine, but I don't read Chinese and had to make liberal use of online translation tools. I hope it goes without saying that if you are interested in traditional Chinese medicine, you should consult a professional. I found two types of Zephyranthes listed, but the one that seems most likely to be relevant is Zephyranthes candida. Which is called tamasudare in Japanese. Medicinal plants are considered to have certain broad characteristics or types hot, warm, neutral, cool, or cold, 
bitter or sweet, and so on. Tamasudare is sweet and neutral, used to suppress an overactive liver and to treat epilepsy and convulsions in children. The name Zephyranthes comes from Greek, Zephyr for the west wind, and Anthes for flower or slender stalks. In mythology, the god of the west wind, Zephyros, is associated with spring and early summer, gentle breezes, and flowers. He is the consort of the goddess of rainbows and messenger to the gods, Iris, and has a son called Pothos, all plant names. In spite of the west wind's gentle and favorable connotations, one of the most famous stories is that of Zephyros's unrequited love with the Spartan prince Hyacinthus, who becomes Apollo's lover instead. So Zephyros sends a discus flying at Hyacinthus's head, killing him, and the spilled blood becomes the flowers that we call hyacinths. So, you know, only gentle up until a point. The association with the west wind makes them a symbol of news, of new information brought in by the wind. Their tendency to bloom after a period of drought has made them symbols of anticipation. And most relevant to the Unit 1 and its pilot, the straight slender stems and white flowers of certain species, like the tamasudare, have made them symbols of straightforwardness, innocence, and chaste, pure love. Tamasudare's name comes from tama, or ball, which refers to the flowers, and sudare, which is a kind of bamboo curtain or screen used in the summertime to allow air and light through while providing shade and keeping insects and rain out. It's thought that the Tomasudare's stalks, which grow in dense clumps, resemble these screens. Another characteristic of sudare worth mentioning is that from the more brightly lit side, they are opaque, but can be seen through from the more dimly lit side. For this reason, they have also been used for privacy, secrecy, and modesty. The GPO-2 is the Physalis. Looked up the pronunciation of that several times. Yes, that is how they say to say it, Physalis a genus of around 70 to 100 species, native to the Americas, Europe, and Australasia. The name Physalis comes from the Greek for bladder. Physalis are flowering nightshades, characterized by the distinctive papery husk around their fruits, which is formed by the flower's calyx. They grow well even in poor soil and are usually self-fertilizing. Common names for some species of Physalis include ground cherry, husk tomato, poha berry, goldenberry, and Chinese lantern plant. And examples of specific species include the Cape gooseberry and tomatillo. While it's common enough to eat the fruits, and there's evidence that humans have been doing so for thousands of years, parts of the plant are poisonous. Even so, in the Americas, there's a long history of every part of the plant being used in medicine. In traditional Chinese medicine, both the fruits and roots of the plant are used. Physalis is considered sour, bitter, and cold and is used for its heat-clearing, detoxifying, and diuretic properties. Physalis is used in medicines to treat cough, sore throat, jaundice, dysentery, swelling, boils and sores, erysipelas, which is a bacterial infection of the skin, malaria, hernia, colic, and fever. There are a number of different names for Physalis in Japanese, but the most common is Hozuki the Physalis alkakengi variation franchetti, or Chinese lantern plant. These are native to many islands of the Japanese archipelago, as far north as Hokkaido and throughout Honshu and Shikoku. The fruits are orange when ripe, and the husk changes from pale yellow to bright scarlet. Despite having edible fruits, they are usually grown as ornamental plants in Japan, and in times past it was common for kids to use parts of the plant as makeshift toys. If I understood correctly, the fruits would be strung together to make little dolls or puppets, the husks blown up like tiny balloons, and if you remove the fruit, you can blow through the husk to make funny noises. This is how people made their own fun before technology, kids. <laughs> Whomst among us has not whistled through a blade of grass? The plant has been used as a sedative since the Heian period and as an abortifacient since the Edo period, since it can cause uterine contractions and it continues to be used as a remedy for cough and phlegm and as a fever reducer. There are several different sets of kanji for hozuki, three listed on jisho.org, but two of them have very similar meanings. They combine the kanji for oni, ogre, demon, or spirit of a deceased person, with the kanji for lamp or light. So in effect, spirit or ghost light. 
This is because the papery husks resemble the lanterns used as decorations during Obon, the Japanese Buddhist holiday when the spirits of the dead return to their hometowns. Lantern decorations are meant to guide those spirits home, and because of the resemblance between the actual lanterns and Physalis fruit in the husk, branches of Physalis with fruit on them are used to adorn Obon offerings for the dead. In Japan, the plant has additional symbolism, including deception, trickery, manipulation, doubts, seduction or temptation, and treachery, betrayal, and unfaithfulness. These last have a very specifically romantic or sexual connotation, largely due to the plant's use as an abortifacient. The implication was that it was used to deal with unwanted pregnancies resulting from infidelity. The GPO3, or Unit 3, combines the stamen with the orchis to form the dendrobium, which was a bit maddening, frankly. Orchis and dendrobium are both genera within the orchid family. So combining a stamen with an orchis to form the dendrobium doesn't make any sense as a matter of botany. And orchid stamens are rather unusual. Most orchids are bisexual, which in plants means they contain both reproductive counterparts in the same flower. In orchids, this is in a unique structure called the column. The male stamen and female pistil are fused together in this structure. So having the stamen as an individual removable part doesn't make a ton of sense either. Hopefully there is some other logic to the naming scheme. Dendrobium is a genus of orchids, the orchid family being divided into 763 genera, with some 28,000 species. That is, quote, nearly equal to the number of species of bony fishes, more than twice the number of bird species, and about four times the number of mammal species. New species of orchid are discovered pretty frequently, and because of its popularity as a decorative plant, there are more than 100,000 hybrids and cultivars. The genus Dendrobium is one of the largest, containing 1,400 species. As I mentioned before, Orchis is another genus in the orchid family, but it was actually divided into several new genera in 1997 because it contains species with a number of different evolutionary origins. Their similarities were the result of convergent evolution. Orchids are perennials and are found all over the world in a wide variety of different habitats, from tropical jungles to deserts, alpine regions to swamps. Although there are some terrestrial varieties, most grow on rock faces or on other plants and trees. Within the orchid family are a truly mind-boggling assortment of flower, petal, and leaf colors and shapes. The one unifying characteristic is that the flowers are all zygomorphic, which means they have bilateral symmetry. The name orchid comes from the Greek word for testicle, and in ancient Greece, orchids were a symbol of male virility, and the bulbs were used as an aphrodisiac. In the Philippines, orchids represent forest protectors. In some parts of Indonesia, orchids are fairy cloaks. The Aztecs considered orchids a symbol of strength and made a strengthening medicine from vanilla orchids. Yep, vanilla pods are the fruit of orchid plants. The Aztecs also used orchids for medicine, for sores, burns, cough, and dysentery. In China, orchids are symbols of beauty, nobility, and springtime, and are one of the four gentlemen, common subjects in Chinese bird and flower paintings. The others are plum blossoms, bamboo, and chrysanthemums. As an ingredient in Chinese herbal medicine, orchid, and specifically dendrobium, is considered sweet and cold, good for treating yin deficiency. Uses vary somewhat depending on the species, but include treatments for various lung and stomach ailments, fever, impotence, bleeding, impaired vision, and muscle weakness. Orchids have been cultivated in Japan for hundreds of years, as ornamental garden plants and for use in perfumes and medicines. Different varieties of orchid have had periods of intense popularity, and several sources mentioned orchids grown by samurai and lords. In Japan, orchids symbolize noble beauty, elegance, and sensuality. But there are additional associations based on the particular species. One orchid with white flowers represents purity. Another with pink flowers expresses love. Cattleya orchids are supposed to symbolize the fascination, magic, and graceful charm of a mature adult lady, which immediately made me think of Lieutenant Matilda and Tomino's scent of a woman line. And one of my sources listed dendrobium as representing a selfish, beautiful woman. 
Rather than lay out just my thoughts on how all of this relates to the mobile suits, the characters, and the story of Stardust Memory, Tom and I are going to have a little discussion. But not this week. Because we don't have time. That discussion is going to be part of next week's episode. Look forward to it. (laughs) I have so many thoughts. We order you to look forward to it. Next time on episode 8.14, this place is best shunned and left uninhabited. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 13, the final episode, and Nina versus Nina in the epic showdown you've all been waiting for. Bask in the light. A resignation letter with bullet points called the Gerbera Tetra because it's on screen for about four seconds. Nina is in love with two men and understands zero men. Gundam, having already blown up New York, drops a colony on Tom's hometown. The Beautiful and the Damned. Cole glimpses the meta. Swept under the rug. And no new types, no purpose, no resolution. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombie Fish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Joni, who says that 0083's music problems are easily explained. They spent their whole budget on the four most perfect songs ever made, and then they had to steal the rest. Now, Joni didn't say which four songs were the perfect ones, but I'm just going to assume that she meant the three different versions of Back to Paradise, plus the winner, which is arguably the fourth version of Back to Paradise. Ooh, you're going on an adventure for love. other moment that I thought was kind of interesting, although I'm giving them a lot of credit that maybe they don't deserve. And Synapse says, oh no, we can't do that until the Unit 3 has finished resupplying. But at that very moment, the Unit 3 is out and fighting. So... I mean, could he mean that it has to come back and resupply? Am I giving them too much credit? That is a weird phone ring. (laughs) I'm so unused to running into other Ninas that it's very uncomfortable for me. Dudes like you with biblical names run into other dudes with those same names all the time, and you must get used to it. You must have had classes with other Toms in them. Rarely, actually. It wasn't very common for people our age. I have to take pleasure in being able to roll my R's. (laughs) What? (laughs) You're just making a face.